So have, having having those stories that encourage children to feel awe, curiosity about the world around them, that they know that they're having a experience of nature in the city, I think I think it's going to be pretty pretty important. Coming to you from Arlington Independent Media, I am your guest host, Lydia Perry, and this is Choose to be Curious. I'm a recent college graduate and a Choose to be Curious intern this fall. I spent a lot of time this summer thinking about the environment, our relationship to it, the climate crisis, and how to cultivate a sensitivity toward nature. I've wondered what role stories may play in that process, how they might help us find connections to our larger world. In the past, folklore and mythology have often blurred the lines between human and other, such that our interconnections have been impossible to ignore. As part of an extractive culture being non-Indigenous on American soil, my cultural experience was void of this narrative, as I assume was the case for many in my position. In a globalized world where movement of people and ideas is expected, how can we reignite that historical relationship to place? Today, I have as my guest Liam Hennigan. Liam was born and raised in Dublin, Ireland, and he now resides in the American Midwest, where he is a professor of environmental science at DePaul University. He is also a poet, a researcher, and the author of Beasts at Bedtime, Revealing the Environmental Wisdom in Children's Literature. His research and writings have touched on conservation efforts in urban communities, invasive earthworm species, birdsong, and more. Such a vast topic to explore and such a wealth of information from my guest, I'm hoping this conversation will serve as a walk through the wilderness, an exercise in curiosity itself. I'm so grateful to have this opportunity for enriching conversation and I'm excited to see what thoughts and ideas sprout during our time here. So Liam, thank you for joining me and welcome. Well, thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. I, I, I'm feeling a bit intimidated by my introduction. <laughs> well, I don't think you have to. I you think know. you really live <laughs> up to it and more. Okay, well, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> okay. So I kind of wanted to start out by asking you a bit about your book, which I did read this summer. So what was your inspiration behind it? What, what drew you to children's stories? Yeah, so there's maybe a few things going on. I think the, the proximate, you know, motivation for the book was when my kids left home, kind of a product of an empty nest it it really hit me hard, I think. And so when we were trying to kind of reorganize at home, we decided that we would clear up their bedrooms. And I don't know whether we were going to turn it into a discotheque or whatever, whatever it is one does with these bedrooms, kind of reclaim that space. But I think particularly when I was like taking down the books from their bookshelves, you know, bringing them down elsewhere in the house, basement, you know, and started to reread a lot of them. And I bought some environmental books, like I'm a naturalist, and I kind of try to inculcate an environmental sensibility in them. But I think it was really looking at the sort of things that they had read, that were similar to the ones that I had read, folk tales, nursery rhymes, and all the Tolkien stuff, Peter Rabbit, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that it struck me that these books were 
you know, had a lot of environmental information in them. And that initial curiosity about that environmental content led me to kind of a piece of writing. I had a couple of essays on thinking through some of this environmental content for the online journal Aeon. And I just took it from there. So the book, the immediate genesis was this kind of sense that there really is a curriculum for environmental education already embedded in the sort of books that children naturally gravitate towards. And I think as I started to write more uh, on the topic and realizing that that wasn't an accident, like so it's not like there's accidentally environmental content in Tolkien. In fact, you know, for Tolkien, conservation of the British countryside and a skepticism about industrialism is really at the core of his thinking. I mean, this anxiety about, you know, the destruction of the world around him. I I mean, I I would kind of see him as being a kind of an early conservation thinker in some ways. But just to finish that thought, though, about the children's writer as kind of a natural historian, like Beatrix Potter, of course, is the great example of a person with vast mycological interests, was um, had done kind of original scientific work, and of course was rebuffed by the scientific society as a you know female scientist. They were not going to take her seriously. I don't think she could even read her own paper to the Linnaean Society. So the point I, I guess I'm at length making is that, you know, the reason why I think there is so much extraordinary natural content and so much of an environmental curriculum in these, you know, stories for children is that children's writers are often attuned that way to be, to begin with. Are you familiar with the movie Song of the Sea? I know that, that film studio, it's an Irish film studio, and they draw a lot on Celtic mythology. And in Song of the Sea, I remember there's a, a moment in it where the the Selkie, although we don't know she is at that time, and her brother have to go into the city to live with their aunt or something. And with the change of landscape, everything becomes darker, more drab, and you get the sense that things are much less possible here in this urban environment. But you also touch upon urban environments in the book and also in your research as well. So do you feel like the urban environment has been done a disservice by by these stories? Or do you think that there is something that it might always be missing? One of the you know, mild disco- discoveries of uh, writing Beats of Bedtime was just the dearth of urban environmental tales, which, you know, I, I think is being being repaired. But if I was a younger or earlier career writer for children and was tr- trying to think through with them in an engaging way in looming environmental crises, you know, I was certainly situated in an urban setting. So it's it's not as um, prevalent, but then at the same time, like there are, you know, we don't often think of Calvin and Hobbes as being an urban story, but it is essentially, as far as I can work out, it's a suburban environment. So the dad in Calvin and Hobbes has a job in the in the city, so it's it's there. It's just you know not 
always a celebrated aspect of, of children's writings. We often want to think of the kid being propelled outside the city because that's where the real stuff is. And I think the real transformation in environmental thought at the moment is that there's a lot of opportunities for evolving appropriate environmental responses in urban settings that all of our thought has you know can't be on kind of wilder places and in fact the history of 20th century ecology as a natural science had so focused on the pristine and the unspoiled the unhumanized that urban ecology like really ecologizing our understanding of cities really has only emerged over the last 20, 20 years. As a younger environmental person, like in my 20s, I was always kind of made to feel like, you know, if you were studying things in an urban environment, you weren't doing real ecology. But that's changed. And in fact, you could make an, an argument that all ecology is essentially urban ecology because all, like this planet in the Anthropocene is essentially urbanized, that the cities cast kind of a shadow over the entire globe for better or worse. Can I throw in one more thing there? I've been asking, like as a thought experiment with my students, graduate students over the last few weeks, we've been thinking about newer city, which is a city that is being developed for Mars with a expected kind of delivery date at uh, 2100. What strikes me about it, maybe the most interesting aspect of this, is the fact that our expectation is that were we to leave this planet and really kind of think about colonizing the stars, which I'm not advocating, by the way. I mean, we're go- one of the things that we will take with us is our urbanism. So there's going to be no hunter-gatherer period on Mars. You know, so we're bringing urban civilization with us. We're going to bring all of the accoutrements of urban civilization with us, our writing systems, our systems of technology, our specialized occupational, you know, orientations in our life. And I bet you our injustices, our elitism, our sexism, it's all going with us. You know, it's all going with us to to Mars, which is not a comforting thought but i i think like i'm 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 interested in these sort of things because to me that's a stark reminder that urbanism is not the city life you know in which probably 70 percent of people on earth are going to be urbanites certainly by the end of this century so having having those stories that encourage children to feel awe curiosity about the world around them, that they know that they're having a experience of nature in the city, I think I think it's going to be pretty, pretty important. I, you know, maybe it's just a function of the way in which planning occurs. But, you know, as more and more information became available to urban planners and urban designers and municipal governance, that having access to green vistas and being able to get out into parks wasn't just kind of an aesthetic thing, not to denigrate aesthetics, but it, it wasn't just because it looked pretty. It wasn't just because it stimulated the senses that there is kind of a powerful physiological 
benefit of either working in nature or even having some sort of access to passive recreation in open spaces. So that kind of literature, I think, you know, by the way, children's literature has always gotten this, like the number of stories in children's literature on children and gardens, you know, secret gardens, et cetera, et cetera, that there's always been an intuition, I think, in children's literature that frolicking in green spaces is kind of good for you. But the data, solid, quantifiable data from environmental psychology and environmental sociology is really only coming in at the at the moment so that it I think it becomes easier to govern for and legislate for equal access to green space. Wow. Well I'm I really hope for that future, honestly. You touched on this in your book as well, this idea of being a transplant. You do mention that children seem to have a a more kind of natural inclination towards wonder at the environment and that we seem to think that we have to nurture and teach that to them. But in fact, maybe we need to learn that from them instead. That really stuck with me. And I'm wondering, how do you think we could cultivate as adults in this globalized world, a connection to new places. Yeah. And I I think the question is really getting at, I think, one of the most important challenges of our lifetimes, developing the tools of imagination, maybe the tools of comportment that, you know, allow us to attach ourselves as, as adults to a new place. And To some extent, it's kind of maybe easier for people who have long lived in the same place that the areas of your youth, you still have access to the niches in the landscape that had given you comfort as a child is still there to do the same thing. But I think the challenge is exacerbated, of course, when we're all bouncing around the place. You grow up in... I don't know, LA and you end up getting a job in New York or if you know, you're grow up in Dublin as I did and then you're in the Midwest, you do not have, you know, a long affiliation with that place. And I think these these landscapes in which you kind of live out your adult life become uncanny to you. So you're living in these landscapes that you really don't have a very good understanding of. So I think I mean, that's identifying the problem. You know, in fact, maybe I'm giving two ways of identifying the problem. One is this thing that I call toponesia, like a forgetfulness of place as you get older. Just it's hard sometimes to revive that appetite that you have for the intimacy of landscape and the joy of frolicking with wild places, with wild things. But secondly is the problem of being distant from a place that you where you know how to read the landscape. The repair is maybe a little bit difficult to articulate, but I, I think one thing we can do is kind of look for good models of people who have shown us how you go about attaching yourself to a place as you get older and retaining curiosity and awe in the, the landscape. I'm one of my go-to people uh, for that kind of blowing into a place and 
you know, learning to read that landscape is uh, the work of the cartographer, visual artist, writer, uh, Tim Robinson, who, alas, uh, died last year during uh, kind of the high, you know, COVID awfulness. But he, Tim Robinson and his wife, Mairead, had moved to the west of Ireland when they were you know, relatively young, like in the in the 70s. But, you know, after they had both developed the early parts of their career in Europe, he's an Englishman. So they came over to the west of Ireland and over a period of about 40 years, I think Tim and Mairead, through Tim's writing and the maps that he drew, have become synonymous with the Aran Islands initially and then Connemara in County Galway. So that's a very long-term effort. And not all of us are not, you know, everyone who's trying to develop, retain, you know, a sense of connection with place are going to spend four decades writing, thinking, making maps and art, you know, about about a place. But you can pick up any of these tools, just as, as kind of a, and a, a willingness to listen to people, to attend to the landscape, to kind of cultivate awe in a world that maybe initially is not very legible to you. I think those those are things that are available to all of us. So even though Robinson's work was on kind of a kind of a monumental scale, people who do this sort of work where they're identifying with a place really write voluminously. And so even though we may not all want to share our writings about the place where we live, just the exercise of kind of keeping journals and being attentive and noticing things and communicating the fact that you're noticing things, I, I think is kind of part of that. those technologies that help you imprint yourself to a new place. On that note... I wanted to ask if you have any curiosity practices. So as a natural historian, and I've spent maybe a little bit of time thinking and writing about this, you know, what is the foundational, you know, practice or methodology of natural history? And it's walking, which um, I, I think I won't be your only guest to have uh, talked about the importance of walking. And so walking, you know, as the core methodology of natural history, by the way, Darwin references walking a lot more than sailing or being on a boat in void, because essentially the discovery of evolutionary principles were discovered through kind of walking around a place. So walking then itself is foundationally a practice of the body. I mean, I would say that the key way in which I as a small time, you know, maybe insignificant inheritor of a great tradition, kind of walking is the not only the means of getting my body uh, from A to B, it's a way of bringing the senses. So you, when you walk, you bring your senses with you, but you bring them at a pace appropriate to the world around you. So I, you know, I'm a slow, extremely attentive, very assiduous walker. I'm also, by the way, 
a very attentive reader, obviously. And um, I think reading is also, you know, a kind of an act of curiosity and not just because, you know, you're selecting uh, books, but because, again, you know, reading strange activity that it is, you know, has a, a pace, I think, appropriate for the cogitation and digestion of things. So I, I don't know, I'd have to play around with this a little bit, but I, but I think there's kind of deep, deep resonances between, you know, walking and reading in terms of, of pace. And maybe just to finalize that thought, you know, I think the reason why I'm interested in children's reading is that, you know, we often have this feeling that, you know, kids need to be out in the world. So in the environmental movement, you know, people talk about leave no child inside. But I, I would kind of actually change that to leave no child inside without a book. Because, you know, what happens is that very often our first introduction to the natural world comes through how we read about it. And in fact, maybe more importantly, the affectivity that we develop towards the natural world comes about from being with Winnie the Pooh in the Hundred Acre Wood or kind of, you know, imagining yourself in the Shire as a young reader of The Hobbit or being in the terrors of, um, you know, Farmer McGregor's garden in... So the kind of reading that as kind of a, an act of curiosity also then reflects out into the way in which we actually see the world when we're out there. Uh, so I would say those those two things primarily are kind of my, my practices of, of curiosity. I'm so glad you said walking. I feel like it's a curiosity practice that's often overlooked. Yes. <laughs> I love that. I, yes, those are great practices. And then there's one final thing that the usual host, Lynn, uh, usually has her big jar of analogies. And she has asked me to partake in that today. And she has a jar. I don't. So I asked my sibling to write down three random words for me. And there'll be one word for you, one word for me. One word for the audience, uh, to which we will try, if you're up for it, to make an analogy to curiosity. Huh. So my okay. word is waterfalls. Your word is bees. Bees. Yes. Yeah. Would you like to, I'll read the audiences after we've concocted our analogies, but would you like to go first or should I? Uh, I'm I'm happy with either, but if you've got something, uh, I in, don't. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't know if this is an analogy, but and I don't know if this is how, you know, this typically goes in the show. But I've always been interested. There's a there's a practice in Irish monasteries where when a new abbot is uh, elected, the old abbot goes out to the beehives, the apiary or whatever it's called, and tells the bees. And he tells the bees, or I guess the abbotess, she tells the bees, you know, first 
so that the news gets communicated. And so bees are the ultimate agents, I think, of, you know, curiosity. Uh, kind of bees are, I think, kind of what kind of connects plant to plant, you know, uh, kind of connects us when we see them to kind of processes that are larger than us and opens us up, I think, to a deeper curiosity about the world, not only the natural world, but also kind of the connections in the human world. That's great. Yeah. I don't know if that's an analogy. I think I think that there's definitely analogy in there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you go. Oh, waterfalls. Um there I know that they are overflowed. They join body of water to body of water. So in that way, I would say that curiosity is like a waterfall because it connects us between ideas. Um, it drops us into new places, new territory, perhaps new ecosystems. <laughs> um, and it often contains, it often starts from an overflow of something deep within us. That's my attempt there. Uh, and then for the audience, your word is eyes. How is curiosity like eyes? And you can tweet your answers that choose to be curious. <laughs> Um, thank you so much, Liam, for this. This was really, really fun. Oh, that's so good, yeah. I knew we'd have a great conversation. You've been listening to WERA 96.7 FM Radio Arlington. If you'd like to catch up on previous episodes, find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, SoundCloud, and Facebook, all at Choose to be Curious, and on my website at choosetobecurious.com. I hope you'll follow me there and on Twitter at choose number two, letter B, curious. Don't forget to send us your eyes analogy, hashtag analogy. Many thanks to my guest host, Lydia Perry, and her guest, Liam Hennigan. Links to his fascinating work on my website. Thanks, too, to Sean Ballack for our theme and other music. I hope you'll join us again next time. And until then, choose to be curious. Funding for Choose to be Curious on WERA 96.7 FM is provided in part by the Center for Parents and Teens, where families are strengthened through a connection built through positive communication, mutual understanding, and realistic expectations of one another. For more information, visit www.centerforparentsandteens.com. Choose to be Curious is sponsored in part by realtor Christine Hopkins. Curious about real estate? Christine works with clients from around the world using her time and knowledge to build community. As she likes to say, community engagement has always been my big why. Working in real estate has helped me express that. What makes you part of a community more than living there? For more information, visit facebook.com slash Nova House Hunter.